your giggles. <laughs> Paul is writing uh, to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing to them about how to battle against temptation. And he's doing so while he's sitting in a prison in Rome. And the daily sight for him is a Roman soldier who is right there guarding him. And so he uses that very convenient imagery to talk about how we can battle, how we can go into war against the evil one. I'm very appreciative of Doug, who's come today to help me out. Uh, Doug has been here at Lake Point for about 12 years. He's actually helped us out a couple of times. Some of you have been here long enough to remember that. This is the first time he's come dressed up as a Roman soldier, however. Uh, I like Doug because he's very stoic. He's kind of like the guards at Buckingham Palace. He just stands there and helps out. Uh, when Doug is not on stage, he occupies a closet just right down from my office on the second floor. And one of the things that we do when we're interviewing uh, new employees is we send them into that closet to, to retrieve a file, and then we listen to what they say when they turn on the light and the language that they use to determine if they can uh, work at a church or not. <clears throat> now, we, we actually don't do that, but we, we have had some people forget Doug's in that closet. And we have heard some very interesting language over the years. So uh, just got real people working here. That's all. Now, before we actually look at that Ephesians passage where he uses that imagery, what I'd like to do is remind everybody that uh, temptation is not one-dimensional. That when Satan comes and he tries to lure us uh, into some areas, uh, he does it in several different ways. One of the ways that he does that is he tempts us to do something that we shouldn't be doing. Uh, whether it be lying or stealing or adultery or whatever it is, uh, that's the sin of commission that he's enticing us to be a part of. But in the book of James, it also says that if you know that there is something that is right to do and you don't do it, that that's a sin as well. It's called the sin of omission. A lot of times we don't think about that. Sometimes Satan tries to get us not to be generous with the resources that we have. Sometimes Satan tempts us not to serve. He tempts us not to be a witness for him. In these next couple of weeks, I've encouraged you as a church to go out there and invite people uh, to our Easter services. And some of you will hesitate. Satan will tempt you not to do that because someone might think you're kind of some religious fanatic if you're inviting them to church. And, and maybe to save face or have people think better of you, you will yield to the temptation that is the temptation of omission of doing something you should do. Some of you are tempted today not to forgive someone else, to hold on to bitterness, and not to extend the grace that God has extended to you. That's a temptation of omission. But there's a third category as well that I want you to keep in mind as we're talking about battling the evil one, and that is the, the temptation that has to do with trials. A lot of times in the Bible when you see it talking about temptation, it will interchange the word trial because a temptation is a kind of trial and trials are a kind of temptation. Uh, when there's sickness, uh, when there's financial distress, a loss of a job, uh, when there's relational problems, many times we are tempted to stop believing that God is faithful. There's, there's the temptation of commission, there's the temptation of omission, but I also think there's a temptation of disbelief. Remember, Satan came to God and he got permission to tempt his faithful servant Job. And Job lost his job, or rather his, uh, his health. He lost his uh, wealth. He lost his family. And that was a temptation in that third category of disbelief. And so as we talk about battling, think about where you are today. 
and we're your greatest temptation. For some of us, it's to do some things that we know that we'd have, as a believer, we have no place in doing. For others, it's because we are not obeying God and doing some things that we ought to be involved in. And for many others who are in a trial today, it's the temptation to stop believing that our God is good and that he is faithful and that in his own time he will meet our needs. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 11. Paul is writing these words as he sits next to that Roman soldier in prison. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, it begins by talking about taking the belt of truth. Whenever a Roman soldier would put his tunic on, the very next thing that he would put on is he would put on a, a leather belt. And what that leather belt did, it did a couple of things. One is it kept his tunic close to his body so that he didn't get entangled in it when he was fighting a battle. The second thing is obviously it provided a, an opportunity for him to sheathe his sword. And so the tunic of that the, the soldier war was very important. And so the very first thing we have to put on if we're going to battle Satan is we have to put on the belt of truth. And what Paul is saying here is, friends, honesty is the best policy. It's because when we're not honest that Satan can get to us. There's a temptation when we become a part of a fellowship to come here and to put on a false front, to put on a false face to pretend with each other as if we don't still struggle with sin. Uh, friends, the, the Bible says that things change when we become a Christian, but one of the things that will not change until we get to heaven one day is that we still struggle with sin. Paul himself was so honest about this. He said, the very things I want to do, I don't end up doing those things. And the very things that I know I don't have any business doing as a Christian, I find myself struggling, and many times I do those things. Scum and mold grows best in the dark. And that's why it's important that we put the light on our misdeeds, that we put the, the light on the sin that so easily besets us. Because when we get honest with ourselves and we get honest with one another, and most importantly, when we're honest with God, when we confess our sins before him, it gives us our best chance to have victory in the future. You cannot get where you need to go if you're not honest about where you are. Uh, it says in John the third chapter what our problem is. In John the third chapter, verse 19, it says, This is a judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. It does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When we are appropriately transparent with one another and when we're truly radically honest with ourselves 
We can come to God and on a regular basis confess our failings. The great thing is as Christians, grace covers our sin. So now we can afford to be honest with him. The Bible says in 1 John that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful to forgive us of our sins, and don't miss this, and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. The only way our life gets better is when we're honest about what's going on. Uh, one of my accountability partners on his uh, voicemail, when I call him and, and he doesn't answer, his voicemail comes on and he says these words. He says, this is so-and-so, I can't be, I'm not here right now, but uh, I'll try to call you back. And then he ends with, speak the truth. I hate that, uh, that voicemail. <laughs> In fact, I'm thinking about getting a new accountability partner to tell you the truth. <laughs> truth is painful, isn't it? Let me ask you, who in your life do you speak the truth to? Now, obviously, we can't just tell everybody everything that's going on in our life, but there better be some individuals in the family of faith that you can tell the unvarnished truth to. We need that belt of truth. We need that light in our life if we hope to have any kind of victory over Satan because as long as we're pretending, nothing will ever change. Nothing needs to change if our life is a farce and if we're totally hypocrites. And then in that same uh, verse, in verse 14, he talks about taking upon us the breastplate of righteousness. Now, when the Roman soldier put on the breastplate, it was that piece of metal or that woven metal chain that kept his heart protected and kept his major organs protected. He could take a nick to the arm or the hand or the foot or the leg and still fight on, but if a sword comes into this area, we've got trouble, all right? And so he says to us, take upon yourself the breastplate of righteousness. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says the day you became a Christian, that what was placed on you was the very rightness or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we don't stand before God with our righteousness. We stand before him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, follow this. What that means is that when God looks at you, he does not see your past. He does not see your sin. When God looks at you, he sees the very rightness or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, what he's saying is, you need to start looking at yourself like God sees you. God doesn't see you as a slave. He doesn't see you with all your failures and you can't do any better. He sees you with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, I think, best in Romans, the sixth chapter, verse six, it says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that, don't miss this, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, on account of this reckoning, on account of this perception, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. We need to see ourselves as victorious. There was a time when we were working in Satan's field. And when Satan said jump, we had to respond how high. And there was some sin that had power over us and we didn't have the ability to say no to it. That's no longer true. We're now children of the king. We're no longer slaves of Satan. We ought to see ourselves as God sees us as righteous people. You see, the day you got saved positionally before God, you were righteous as if you'd never sinned. And putting on the breastplate of righteousness is about moving from positionally being righteous to practically 
being righteous. And that will never happen unless you see yourselves in the light of your future more than you see yourself in the light of your past. And then in verse 15, he goes to the feet. He says, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. For the Roman soldier, interestingly enough, the, the shoes or his sandals were some of the most important part of his armor. Uh, because uh, the, the shoes that the Roman soldiers uh, wore gave him stability when he was standing. And it also gave him mobility. And one of the great uh, strategies of Julius Caesar was the movement of his troops. That his troop, because they had their feet shod with the proper footwear, could move quickly. And they would appear in places where the enemy didn't think that that troop had time to go to. Well, here in this metaphor, what he tells us is that our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that when it comes to battling Satan, it's not just a defensive issue. But he wants us moving out. He wants us taking new ground for the kingdom. And the, the shoes of the gospel or the shoes of our witness is about us living the kinds of life that legitimize us as witnesses of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that when you and I commit a sin, it's not just the consequences of that individual sin that comes upon us. It is the disqualification that comes for us to be a witness. We are ambassadors for Christ, and what legitimizes us, our credentials, are the very changes that God is bringing about in our life. To be sure, there's none of us that are perfect. We're not talking about being perfect so you can go witness to people, but we're talking about the fact that every time we yield to Satan, to an extent, we disqualify ourselves to speak for Christ. There's many of you who, this as we approach Easter, you will not invite your friends. You will not invite your neighbors. You will not invite your family. Because of the way you've handled your relationships, because of the way you've handled your finances, because of the addictions in your life. Even though you're a Christian, you're living as if you're not a Christian and you've disqualified yourself in your own mind from being a witness for Christ. Part of our motivation for standing against Satan is not just so we can be good boys and girls. It's not so we don't harm ourselves, but it is the very fact that we are the ones who carry the good news of the gospel of peace to those who don't. And that is at stake when we do not have victory against the evil one. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, Jesus said it this way, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Always as we face the evil one, we need to keep in mind that our light of witness shines the greatest against the darkness of our temptation. It says in James that we're to count it joy when, you, when we encounter various trials and temptations. And we're to count it joy. One of the reasons is it gives us an opportunity to witness. When somebody treats you in an ill way and you render good for evil, guess what people notice? When people ask you to go and participate in things that are wrong and you take a stand, sometimes at great cost, you say, no, I, I, I can't do that. I, I've given my life to Christ and I will be unable to participate in that activity. They will make fun of you. They will ridicule you. And I guarantee you, when their life comes crashing down, you'll be the first person they go to. Paul and Silas were in jail. They were being tempted by a trial. They were tempted to disbelieve God. 
and they sang praises to him at midnight. And when the jailer thought all the prisoners had escaped, he came to Paul and Silas in jail, those who had been tempted but had not yielded, and he said, what can I do to be saved? It was their temptation that gave them an opportunity to be a witness. And so it is true in your life and mine. And then he says, in verse 16, he says, Take the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. Now, this is where our visible uh, illustration breaks down a little bit, because this is not the kind of shield that a Roman soldier would have. It's just all we could get on the Internet, okay? (laughs) The truth is, is that when a Roman soldier went into battle, his shield looked more like this. It was four feet high, and it was two and a half feet wide. It was made most of the time out of uh, lumber, and it was covered by a thick leather uh, outer part, part. Now, it was a common thing in that day that people would take an arrow, and they would dip it into burning pitch, and they would fire that arrow. And so Paul says, take the shield of faith, which is able to stop all the fiery darts of the evil one. As they march into battle, shoulder to shoulder, they would take these shields. You could kind of see how this might be a little more beneficial than the hubcap, okay? <laughs> and if their enemy was up on the hill or if their enemy was up on the wall, what they would do is they just take and they would just adjust this a bit. Doesn't that make sense? And if they were in a battle where there were an enemy that was coming this way and enemies coming that way, about half of the folks would stand at the back and they would hold their shield this way while the others would hold their shield this way gives new meaning to that I've got your back all right now this is a great metaphor for what Paul says and notice what he says he says above all take the shield of faith remember what we were talking about last uh, last week we were talking about when we're tempted and when we fail we need to ask the question what is the need behind the deed It's not adultery that's really the problem. It's not really uh, cocaine that's really the problem. It's not really lying that's really the problem. There is an underlying need that we're stepping outside of the will of God thinking that that activity or the lack of activity will meet our need that somehow God has not met our need. And if we could get to the need behind the deed, what are we trusting that drug to do that we're not trusting Jesus to do? What are we trusting that materialism to do that we're not trusting Jesus to do? What are we trusting that unforgiving spirit to do that we're not trusting Jesus to do? You see, to stand behind the shield of faith is to say, you know what? God's promised to meet all my needs, and I have a good God. If I trust him and I just stay behind his will, then we don't put ourselves in a position of being vulnerable to the evil one. Does that make sense? Stand behind the the, the shield of faith that will be able to stop all the fiery darts of Satan. Now, the scripture tells us that when we do that, that it produces something in our life that is helpful to us in the future as we battle temptation. In James, the first chapter, in verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith, that shield, produces something what is it endurance follow this when we stand behind the shield and we trust God and God comes through like he always comes through and we don't step outside of his will in order to have that need met and the need is met right there in his will then we come to endure 
or to have patience or the ability to wait on God in the next situation. Paul and Silas are in jail. And they're tempted to give up on God and think God's not faithful. And then at midnight, God shakes the prison. All the doors fly open. Here's my question. The next time they're in prison, and they were in prison again, are they as worried about being in jail as the first time? Why? Because they stood behind the shield of faith, and it produced in them endurance. Now, every time Paul and Silas were in prison, God didn't throw the doors open. But here's what they knew. He could. And he would if he thought that that's what they needed. Paul is writing these words from prison. He's no hypocrite. He's standing behind the shield of faith, telling us to stand behind the shield of faith. And that if we have a need in our life, if God determines by his sovereign will that it's what we need at that time, God will provide it. If not, he'll provide grace that we may be able to bear it. Stand behind the shield of faith, which is able to stop all the darts of the evil one. And then notice in verse 17. In verse 17, he goes to headgear, okay? And he says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, there's an interesting twist here if you look in the original Greek. In the original Greek, there's two words that he uses in this passage for take. He says, you know, take this and take that and take this. He changes when he comes to the helmet of salvation. He does not take, he does not use the word take as it is in grab or attain, but it's a word that says take that, it just simply means to receive or accept. It's a passive uh, word about just receiving something that's given to us. You see, there are things in the Christian life that God tells us to do, and there are times when he says, let me do for you. And when it comes to salvation, it falls into that category, doesn't it? That it's what he does for us. There's no merit in our salvation. It's a free gift given to us by God. But why in the world would he bring that up in, in a context of fighting a war against Satan? Simply this. He says, when you're going off to battle, remember what covering that God has given for you. That he has given you salvation. That he has forgiven you of all of your sins. And the God who would do that for you, who would freely give you to that, how would he not freely provide everything else so that you might stand behind that shield of faith? He calls our attention to the helmet of salvation because he knows the greatest motivation that we could have to say no to Satan is our gratitude for what God has already done for us. Let's talk about headgear because the Bible says that when we resist temptation, we're going to get another piece of headgear as well. We get the helmet of salvation when we get saved. But in, in, in James, the first chapter, verse 12, notice what it says. It says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial or temptation. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The day you get saved, you receive the helmet of salvation. That's not something you earn. But there's an opportunity from that day forward for you to earn some headgear, and it's called a crown. Here's what a crown is all about. The day you get saved, the day you get saved from that time forward until you stand before the Lord in eternity, you're in the process of building a crown. And every time you say no to Satan and yes to God, it builds on that crown. Every time you resist the sin of commission, a jewel goes on that crown. Every time you step forward in obedience when you're tempted to omit something, there's some sapphire that goes on that crown. 
Every time that you're tempted in a trial to stop trusting God and you stand behind the shield of faith and you proclaim his praises, that crown is built upon. One of these days, every person here is going to stand before our Savior and you're going to receive a crown. Some of our crowns will be gold and sapphire and diamond and ruby. Others will be cardboard covered with tinfoil and artificial bling. Now here's what's important. We wear the helmet of salvation. The crown that our life since salvation represents will never touch our head. The Bible says that on that day we will kneel and we will place that crown how we responded to temptation. We will place that crown at the nail-scarred feet of Jesus Christ. Do you need some motivation to say no to Satan? Yes to God. Our motivation ought to be the fact that our Savior laid down his life so that we would be saved. Now to be sure, the life we live is not repayment to God. We could never repay him for what he's done for us. But it is a thank you note. Every day you live, as you leave here today, you're going to be tempted to do things you shouldn't do. You're going to be tempted not to do some things that you absolutely should be involved in. You're going to be tempted through trials in this coming year to say, where's God? Does he even care? And when you choose by the power and with the equipment that he's given you, you're saying, thank you. You've been faithful to me. You've already done more for me than I could ever ask. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And all those thank yous are going to come together in a piece of headgear one day that will never touch our head because we didn't earn it. It all belongs to him. He gets all the credit for it. See, guilt and shame is not the greatest motivator in this world. It's not. Fear is not the greatest motivator. You know what is? It's love. That's why we're to take the helmet of salvation. And then he closes out that metaphor by saying, take the sword of the Spirit. This is a dinky little sword, but it's all we could get. (laughs) This is not a dinky little sword. Why is it important that we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Well, there's lots of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is that it tells us what's right and wrong. Tells us what to value and what not to value. It reminds us that this life does not consist of the possessions that we own. Tells us where the out-of-bounds are. Can you imagine playing a sporting game and nobody had defined where the out-of-bounds were? You wouldn't have a chance. It determines and and, and it defines where the goal line is. Can you imagine playing any kind of game and not knowing where you where you get those points? And so it does that for us, but it also reveals the strategy of the evil one. Do you think that it would be some kind of an advantage if you were playing a football game? If you knew the play that your opponent was about to run before they ran it, do you think that would be an advantage to you? Bill Belichick thinks it's an advantage. (laughs) You remember Spygate where uh, he, he stole the defensive signals of another team and so when they called the signals, he knew before they ran an offensive play what kind of defense he was running into. He thought it was important. That's cheating in football, but it's not 
in life to know what the evil one is about to do to you. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage that's found in James. James, the first chapter, verse 14. It says, but everyone is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And lust, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death. He's just told us what the devil's game plan is. He says, first of all, there's lust. And lust always precedes sin. And sin always leads to death. The death of a family, the death of a marriage, the death of our witness, the death of our spiritual growth, the death of our ability to thank the Lord for all that he's done for us. Guys, that's how it works, one, two, three. And if we don't want to end up here for the death and destruction that comes as a result of sin, this is where we win the victory. See, a lot of times we start talking about temptation, we think, oh, I just need to try harder not to commit this sin. I just need to white-knuckle it. No, what we need to do is pay attention, according to the Scripture, to this. Because lust is all about the soil of our life. I guarantee you, every person here today, you have a soil to your life. And it's a kind of soil that's receptive to the seeds of God When the seeds of God is placed in your life, it blooms and it produces wonderful fruit called the fruit of the Spirit. Or, currently where you are right now, you've allowed the soil of your life to become polluted. And when Satan drops his seeds into that polluted soil, it bears sin and then death. Now, what makes up that soil? What what causes our own lust? The Bible has a lot to say that. It says the, the people that we hang around with is very important. And God wants us to, to love everybody. He wants us to be with everybody. Jesus was criticized for eating with publicans and sinners. But Jesus had a select few that were his close inner circle. And inside that inner circle, he had Peter, James, and John. And what he did for us is he modeled that we ought to love everybody, but we ought to hang with the people who love God, who will encourage us to live for him. And the closest people with to us need to be those people. The scripture also makes it clear that it's the environments that we find ourselves in. I guarantee you, if you'll look back over your life, there are environments where if you allow yourself to be in that environment, that you have a tendency to move to sin. And everybody's environment is different based on the kind of sin that so easily besets you. And there's some of us who can go to to places that others of us cannot go because we find ourselves around those people and in those circumstances that leads to this. Most importantly, I think that when the Bible talks about lust, it talks about what's in our mind. Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse eight, it says we ought to limit what we think about as Christians because it creates a soil in which either the seeds of God will grow or the seeds of Satan will grow. It says we ought to think about things that are pure and we ought to think about things that are praiseworthy and things are excellent. So the things that we read and the movies that we watch and the people we listen to, the things we daydream about and fantasize about, it's a part of that soil. And we have to guard our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. When Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan came to him and Satan tempted him like he tempts us, Three times it is recorded for us there in Matthew, the fourth chapter. What does Jesus do in response to that temptation every time? He quotes scripture. 
New Testament had not been canonized at that time, so he's quoting Old Testament scripture. But even for Jesus, it was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, became his weapon of choice and gave him the victory. The other thing the scripture will do, the sword of the Spirit will do, is it will reveal the lies of the evil one. Because he comes to us and he says, you're a failure, and you've sinned, and you're no good, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, and you'll never be any better. And by the way, this thing that so easily besets us, that besets you, that you have, you've uh, confessed over and over again, you'll, you'll never, you, you can't say no to that particular sin. But the sword of the Spirit says that no temptation has taken us, but such is common to all men. And our God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. Satan also comes and he lies and he says, God can't forgive you again, not 101 times, not 102 times. And the sword of the Spirit reminds us that God's love is greater than all of our sin. And that we can come again and again and again. And we can find forgiveness and that his mercies are new every morning. We don't have to live a defeated life. We can be victorious, taking upon his armor. It's not about trying harder for him. It's about his armor and him being our strength. Paul also wrote these words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's thank God for that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to live a different kind of life to be lights in a dark world that point people to you. Thank you, dear Father, that we don't have to be slaves anymore, that sin no longer has dominion over us. And thank you, dear Father, that you have given us everything that we need, all the equipment, all the armor that we need, so that in gratitude we can say yes to you and no to him. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.